Craig and I were in Guatemala for the last two weeks. He was teaching, um, he's totally overwhelmed, he was teaching in Spanish four to five hours a day. I was doing nothing but hanging out, preparing this sermon. Um, it's a locked down campus because the neighborhood around it in Guatemala City has become so bad that gringos are not allowed out. They don't want you on the streets. I had nothing to do but prepare, prepare this sermon for two weeks. So it shouldn't go more than about three hours, but I put a lot of effort into it because I had nothing else to do. And seriously, um, we've been going through Luke. We're at the end of Luke chapter 11, and this is going to be the passage where Jesus um, goes off on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I have to admit, a little bit, I looked at and thought, we're, we're not a really Pharisaical church. That was my first thought. Um, what in the world does this passage have to do for me or for you? And then I remembered, I remembered this young woman. I don't know if any of you recognize her. That is me at age 22. That is 1977. I'm fresh out of college. I have my first job. I am teaching in a Christian school, Community Friends Christian Academy, using the Accelerated Christian Education Curriculum. Anybody familiar with that? Super, super conservative, through and through. Mom and apple pie and the gospel, all thrown in one big pot. The church itself was very conservative. I was, I was surprised even as I was being hired. I wasn't too surprised about the um, you can't drink and you can't smoke. Okay. Um, you have to wear a dress. Okay, I'm 22. I can still get away with that. Um, the hair was very suspect. I had to convince him that was my own hair. That was not me, you know, being one of those women who went out and got their hair all frizzed up. That was me. Um, anybody remember the, the, the show The Mod Squad from the 70s? Yeah. There was, um, it was novel for its time because there was the three protagonists were a white guy, a white woman, and a black guy. And I couldn't look like the white woman with the long blonde hair, but I could look like the black guy, so that made me cool. But the other thing with this um, conservative church and school was no movies, which wasn't a problem usually because it was so far out in the middle of nowhere in New York, Clinton Corners, New York. The nearest movie theater is 20 miles away, so not much of a concern until May 1977. Pop quiz, what show came out May 1977? No? Star Wars. Star Wars. Can't go to see Star Wars. And I remember having serious discussions with other people at the church. If we can't go to the movies, can we read the book? I mean, does the rule allow us to read the book if we can't go to the movies? Is there like a mileage beyond which we can go because nobody will find us? And what if we went down to the city? Because you know, we're only 100 miles from New York City. So having those discussions about this very, very conservative church and school that I was teaching at, and at the same time at age 22, getting involved in, in even more, more outrageous group that some people call a sect, I've heard it called a cult, that might be beyond it, a group called The Way that was really into communal living, 
communal finances. You do what the hierarchy tells you to do. You marry who, they're told you to, who they tell you to marry. You have the job they tell you to have. You know, and, okay, guys, you know me. I'm not the type to follow the crowd like that. I'm not the type to listen to that kind of head, you know, top-down authority. So how and why? Why is there this period in my life? And why, even if we are not the Pharisees, although I think we are, and I'll show you why, why do we follow people like this? And that's, that's where this passage started getting really interesting for me. Looking at that young kid and saying, why? How did you get mixed up in that? So I'd like us to go ahead and um, look at the scripture. What's at stake in the passage that we'll look at today is really Jesus getting on with the Pharisees and saying, okay, whose authority? Is it the authority of those who make up the religious rules, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes? Or is it Jesus himself? He's been in communication with these guys for two and a half years of his public ministry now. Things are coming to a head. And in this passage, he draws the line in the sand, and we will see what happens. So let's read the passage now. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Okay, Jesus is a dinner guest. Remember the manners mom told you to have? The Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And the Lord said to him, Now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of all your mint and rue and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Aren't you glad you invited Jesus to dinner? One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build the tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside... The Pharisees said, thank God he's gone. No, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Oh, way to go, Jesus. I mean, we've seen, you know, the little saying, Jesus saves. 
And we know the short Bible verse, Jesus wept. So right here, Jesus snaps. What the Jesus? See, I didn't say it. But uh, you wonder, what the heck? What is going on here, Jesus? You've been invited to dinner. And you go off on this guy and his tribe, so to speak, his buddies, his friends, his profession, his whole class. Who were these Pharisees? Well, you know, we've, we've met them several times going through the Gospel of Luke, and I, I hope we've done a fair job saying that in their hearts, they started out very sincerely. They wanted to make sure they practiced what was in the first few books of the Scripture, the Torah, the law, because they wanted Israel to be distinct and noticeable as the people of God with all these surrounding nations and false religions and false gods. They started that way, wanting the distinction in order to show that they worshipped God. But somehow in their mind, those actions got a little twisted to the point where they thought the fact that they dressed differently and had different customs in and of itself made them holy to God, guaranteed. So they turned from a genuine desire for worship to a very much a self-righteousness. We got this. We are okay. God loves us because we dress distinctively. We have different habits. We are separate from all those people around us. And in this, no one was getting impacted with any of the good news that God's law and God's character was to bring. At times, they came to Jesus, and they wanted his help. Jesus, heal the centurion's servant. This guy built us a synagogue, and he helps us stay under the radar of the Roman Empire. He helps us, you help him. Jesus, heal Jairus' daughter. He's a synagogue ruler. He's a cool guy. He's one of us. Help him. And at other times, they were totally pissed off that God, that Jesus was helping people. They didn't like it when he claimed that he could forgive sins of the paralytic. And they really didn't like it when uh, just a couple weeks ago in a passage Kathy covered, when Jesus cast out a mute demon. And they didn't like that. And they said, well, he's doing it by the power of Satan. Obviously, they are very confused about Jesus. They don't know what to do with this guy because he is not following their rules that they made, their root characteristic, they built a religious system around themselves that justified them and put them on top of the pecking order. Jesus walks into their world and says, no, me, I am righteous. I am truth. I am the way. I am holiness. I am separated. I am distinct. Me, not the rules you have made. The Pharisees' lives were really compromised. Their motives were wrong. Externally, they looked great. They were at the top of the pecking order. They were, you know, the best Jews around in that day. And they had everyone around them looking up to them, trying to imitate them because they were their own PR people saying that we are the ones to be followed. But... They didn't want to hear truth from Jesus. They wanted to control Jesus and tell him when to play the God card and when to hold back and simply follow their ways. 
didn't go over well. So Jesus was a pretty crummy, impolite dinner guest. He was, um, this is the second of three times in the Gospel of Luke we see him invited to a Pharisee's house. The first time, this woman busts in and starts wiping his feet with her hair and crying, forgive me, and all the people around are thinking, oh, Lordy, surely he knows what kind of a woman this is. Her reputation is from here to the other side of town. Why doesn't he do something about this? And what he did was offer her forgiveness and respect. This time... There was this custom that the Pharisees in particular had of washing their hands before a meal. And it wasn't just because things were dirty and dusty back then. By the way, we got the roof done this week, so things are kind of dirty and dusty here this week. Sorry. But um, got a new roof. But the Pharisees' reason for this custom of washing was, we have been out in the world and it has polluted us. We have shaken hands with heathens. We have handled money. We have had to ride public transportation. Oh, now I'm kind of getting into contemporary ideas. We've had to be on the bus with people who are not like us. Somebody brushed up against us. And to show that we are holy and separate, we are now going to wash our hands before we eat. It had nothing to do with either having clean hands or worshiping. It was that, oh, get the stain of the world off me again. Jesus didn't do it. Jesus knew that his holiness is what was contagious, not somebody else's impurity. We practice that at Scum too, I hope, realizing that Jesus' holiness is contagious. We take it into some really raunchy situations. We don't try to wipe the, the scum of the earth off of us. We are the scum of the earth. So Jesus didn't bother washing his hands. Now that's a, a real breach, a huge breach. That's just rude as a guest. I mean, I've never had a guest in my house who would not be quiet, even if they just sat quietly, while we said grace before a meal. You do that when you're company. You're just polite. You don't break a custom of your host. You just go with it politely, quietly, but not Jesus. And the Pharisee, all it says is the Pharisee was surprised. It doesn't say a single word came out of his mouth, but Jesus knowing his thoughts, snaps at the poor guy and goes into this long list of woes and condemnations. All because of a hand wash? No, because of an entire lifestyle that this hand washing ritual represented. Jesus first calls him out. If we go back one slide. He first calls him out and Jesus is, you know, I actually picture him as being so upset. He's, he's mixing his metaphor. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and you inside are filthy. I was like, okay, well, are we talking about cups or people here, Jesus? Come on. I mean, can, can we get this straight? But really what Jesus is saying is you're hypocrites. You are hypocrites for trying to look so cool and so good and holy on the outside. Inside, you are filthy. Your attitudes stink. When he calls them fools, that is a huge insult. It's an innocent word in English, but he might as well have called them fill in the blank yourself. You know what the biggest insult would be in our vernacular today. And he's saying the hypocrisy that resides in you guys is, I'm sick of it. I'm done with it. His answer to this, because the Pharisees were the ones who had set themselves up as the best Jews around. 
their hypocrisy was that they had no care or concern for those who were unable to live up to their written standards of how to follow God. And so Jesus' answer to this is, give alms, give charity, sacrifice. Don't just give off, skim off the top what's comfortable for you. Sacrifice generously. Share your power and position. God is looking for an obedient attitude on the inside, not a fine-looking outside while the inside is just cancerous, full of scum. Show genuine solidarity with the poor because usually your contrived restrictions are casting out those who are not favorable in your sight. Jesus goes off on them in the, in the next woe, actually the first woe. Um, We've got to do a little background here. You give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of herbs. Well, yes, the Old Testament did call for tithing, giving a tenth. In fact, if you really followed the law as God wrote it, you could wind up giving up to 30%, three different tithes to three different causes. What God is after here is generosity. These guys were counting out grains of herbs, and rue is actually a weed. That would be like me saying, Lord, I give you a tenth of all the dandelions in my yard. Big deal. God is after something much bigger than this minuscule, obsessive little attention they're giving to small, small details. What they were doing here and I think this is something we do too, concentrating on small details of behavior allows us to set up our own rules for righteousness that we already know we can keep rather than dealing with God's expansive call for huge character-changing and shaping traits like love and justice, holiness, purity. They were so concentrated on these insignificant little details that they neglected what was broader and more difficult to measure, therefore more difficult to claim success at. I liken it to, you know, it's very hard to say, okay, today I did justice. But I can tell you, well, today I handed out six sandwiches on the 16th Street Mall to homeless people. Pat on the back. And then later in the day, I went and voted all in favor of my hometown, my neighborhood, and I'm keeping those people out of my life. Do you see what they were doing? They were applauding themselves for the little things they did, but neglecting broad principles, and they were inconsistent, and they, were, they lacked integrity. I, I think of things like um, we tell people when we have potluck, bring enough for your, your family and two others. So picture someone at home saying, well, um, I tend to eat five carrot sticks in a serving. Therefore, uh, my spouse and I, we should bring 20 carrot sticks to potluck. And you can see... Well, that's precise, but that's not generosity. Or think of the person who says, look, 
I did the dishes. I walked the dog. I got the kids to bed. What I did on the computer for the next three hours, is that love? You know, it, where's the general big principle here? Not just the details. Or uh, my, favorite, my favorite pet peeve is um, rules in the church bathroom. And uh, Chris Francis and I have a running joke about that. So if a list of rules shows up in this church bathroom, just blame me. It's a joke. But even in Guatemala, the only thing I can figure is this church must have just gotten one of those hand-activated um, drying things. Because the rules were printed. One sheet of paper only. Only for drying the hands. Please teach these rules to your children. And I'm thinking, oh, welcome to church. Great. Uh, you know, just the inconsistency, the focus on the little takes our mind away from the broader, broader principles. And Jesus never came to set aside the law. Neither did he come to convolute it so much that it couldn't be kept. His goal was to deepen it, to deepen it within us so that internally we are living according to the will and character of God and not just using our checklist, our little wonderlist app, bing, you know, to get another point in our own thinking. The broad principles. When Jesus said, well, you know, like the example of um, the Good Samaritan is very, very risk-taking and a costly obedience, loads the guy on his donkey, takes him to the inn, gives the innkeeper a couple coins and says, whatever it costs, I will pay when I get back and leaves with no idea of what the cost is going to be. That kind of generous obedience. Not just, I gave him a Band-Aid, I gave him a ride, and now I'm done. No, the costly, unexpected, I don't know where this is going to take me kind of obedience Jesus is after. The Pharisees love to be noticed. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you know people too. I know people who are only comfortable when you know they are in charge, when they perceive that they are seen as being the top of the pecking order. Maybe you've had a boss like this. Maybe somebody in your family always has to win the argument. Maybe we can admit that it's one of us. Um, that, that the security only comes when you know you're at the top. And Jesus berated them for that too their moral judgment was off because of this kind of pride. They had to be in the center of control. Jesus calls them like unmarked graves. Um, Jews did not want to step on or desecrate any kind of a grave. Um, so they always had good-sized headstones. If the graves weren't marked, you could step on it, and then you became impure because of contact with the dead. What this is saying to me is, in calling them unmarked graves, he's saying, you're hiding your sins. You're hiding them be beneath or behind this appearance of being cool and righteous on the outside. And in hiding sins accomplishes only one thing. As a leader, you teach others how to hide their sins too. And this concerns me a lot in any community. Because as a community, if we don't hold each other accountable and if we don't practice vulnerability, we will, as a community, only learn to hide better and better 
behind false appearances or flat surface statements. Like, and the power of, the power of a secret to destroy us from the inside versus the power of confession to break the secret. I'm not saying you got to blab your whole life to everyone, but if you've ever, I mean, some of you may be like me, raised Catholic, and you understand the power of confessing breaks the power of the secret. But we carry our secrets, and we hide behind. In Guatemala, they had a 36-year civil war, and it was brutal. It was brutal. It was the government against any number of leftist groups. So, ooh, leftist, you know, could go socialist or communist. I mean, they, some of them were really downright Maoist and as bad as anything. But most of these rebels were indigenous Indians from many different tribes. And the, the end of the day, over 200,000 civilians are killed. Most of them simply disappeared. And mass graves are still being found. So what does the church have to say about this? Nothing. It was sort of like um, a game with me. I would just try to introduce the subject with students or teachers or other people I know, and I've done this on every trip I've made. So how are you guys recovering from the war? Blank stare, silence. Because the church never worked through this issue themselves, they have nothing to say, and all they're doing now in the next generation is perpetrating that secrecy and the inability to talk about it. And so it's just there, festering, 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 like unmarked graves with death inside, and we don't even know it. All we're learning to do is hide better, too. I fear sometimes in our own churches, we have our level of vulnerability that we're comfortable with. And it's a very unwritten, soft-spoken, it's a very subtle thing. But if we want to start talking about how many of us are struggling with gender identity, how many of us have been sexually abused, how many of us have had or have provoked others to have abortions, we don't want to talk, I mean, there's, we'll be vulnerable until the level gets to discomfort. And all we've done here at SCUM is maybe bump the level up a few degrees from a suburban church, but we have our limits too. And we have to struggle to get over that fear of talking openly about what is festering inside of us because all we'll do is teach the others around us and teach our kids to hide better rather than bust out the grace of God. We don't want to be like unmarked graves. Well, at this point... The expert of the law interrupts. This is where Jesus, I think, took a drink after his deliverance of three woes. And this teacher of the law, the expert, was like a theological lawyer. It was their job to interpret God's laws. And then the Pharisees were the ones, you know, who carried out better than anyone. And they had taken simple things like the command, one command, keep the Sabbath. They had, by the time of Jesus, developed 39 categories of work. There was work with your animals, work with your fields, work in your kitchen, 
work with mending, work as walking, work as medical, work as caring for, I mean, they had all these categories and every category had hundreds of stipulations underneath them. They had so, so incredibly complicated the law. But Jesus, and this guy says to Jesus, you insult us too when you say these things. And I don't know, picture it in any voice you want. I just picture it as just the weakest little wussy little type of argument. And all it did was give Jesus time to take his breath and go off again on the next round. Woe to you guys too, because you have taken God's word. You have so convoluted it. You have so added to it, expanded it in these areas and neglected it in these. You have made it indescribable. You have made it unrecognizable. The character of God and his actual will can barely be seen in the product you are putting in front of people at this point. And it it was so, again, as I, I said earlier, so unfair, particularly to the poor. It was as if they were saying, look, to be holy, you have to read the Torah. Well, what if you were illiterate because you couldn't afford to go to school? If you want to be holy, you have to wear certain garments. What if you're dirt poor and you're lucky you have anything to wear? And all these regulations about work in a hand-to-mouth subsistence economy where, you know, if the rains are coming, you've got to get out there and get your crops. Any of you who grew up in the Midwest know that. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday or a holy day. But by the time they were done with all their stipulations, vast numbers of people had been excluded from the potential of pleasing God because all they had done was add to the minutia of the laws that would displease God. Jesus is going off on that principle too. This whole long segment, this next one, let me just summarize because here again, I, I, I think it's almost as if you know Luke the scribe is taking this down as fast as he can. And it's not necessarily making sense, but it's an honest, it's an honest transcription. What Jesus is basically saying here is that from the beginning of time, there have been Pharisees who claim they know better than the simplicity of God's will and God's character. And God in his mercy has sent prophets and religious leaders in their wisdom have killed them. And God in his mercy has sent more. And the stakes keep getting raised. More prophets, more anger, more killing. What he's saying here is that you claim you honor the prophets. It's easy to honor a dead hero. I mean, like, look at our country. How many cities have Martin Luther King Boulevard? And how many cities have racial riots and racial tensions going on right now? Oh, we honor the hero, but we don't honor the message. Mother Teresa, oh, wonderful, wonderful work with the poor. Wonderful work with the poor. I don't even want to go out and hand a sandwich to somebody on the street. You know, because my, I don't know what they've got they could contaminate me with. And as far as being celibate, in order to devote my time. So, no, 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 don't, don't start meddling now. We honor the dead hero, but we don't listen to the message. And from A to Z, works out well in English, doesn't it? Abel to Zechariah, from the first prophet killed to the last prophet killed in the Old Testament. A to Z, you kill them. Oh, you build great tombs for them. 
but you're not following their message. And Jesus is saying, I'm before you now. You yourselves have called me a prophet and you won't listen to me. And I know where this is leading. I know I'm going to the cross and you guys are going to help put me there. The hypocrisy of it all. He's just snapping at them. He's over. His last attack on this group as a crappy dinner guest, one more slide, is to say that you have taken away the key to knowledge. These guys who had the ability to read the Torah and they had the books to interpret the Torah and they had the books to interpret the prophets and they had all this, they had every tool they needed to get it right in a society where it was a big deal to be able to read and only public institutions would have an actual copy of the word. They wouldn't have private Old Testament Bibles to carry around. You don't get it, and you're keeping it and hiding it from others too. This idea of either being too strict with God's words and so specifying it that it's impossible for people to do, or this idea of looking at chunks of it and saying, oh, that really makes me uncomfortable. We'll just pretend that one's not there. We'll just kind of rip that part out. Or just ignoring the weightier measures, the huge principles that reflect God's character. When you, hide, when you do this and you hide it from others, you are just bringing down the entire community. And we see there is a responsibility for every one of us that has access to those resources. To think not just what it means for us to do our own study, but the responsibility we have to keep the standard up, the standard of internalizing God's word here at SCUM. And then Jesus walks out. And I can't help but thinking the host is like, oh, thank God he's gone. <laughs> what the heck, Jesus? I mean, the guy just had a thought and you freaking go off on him. But the line was being drawn in the sand with every encounter. And at this point, I think the Lord and creator of the universe knew that this would be the tipping point. And the scripture tells us that from this point on, it wasn't, there was no more confusion. There was no more being nice to Jesus, no more inviting him to dinner to see what he might think. There was active opposition. And the Greek words translate to things like setting traps, pending attack, aggressive hunting, out for the kill. And the Lord of all creation had to set this up in order that in probably less than six months of ministry, he would be on the cross winning our salvation for us. So why? I go back to the question I had at the beginning and wake all you guys up and get a little interaction in this small crowd here. Why would anybody want to be a Pharisee or why would anybody want to follow one? Now, if you were here this morning, let the other people have a chance to go first because you heard the answers. But why? Seriously, why would anybody do this? Power, money, and respect. Prestige. Throw out some more words. Why would anybody do this? Why would you follow somebody doing this? Pardon? Oh, to belong, yeah. Uncertainty, yeah. Genuine uncertainty. Uh, 
confused state of mind, not seeing, not hearing right. Mindlessness. No other choice. Doubt. Tradition, tradition, dun, 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 tradition. Yep. I envisioned it, and I appreciate all that because it's going to make it a lot easier for me to be brief because you guys got it. <laughs> but if I had any PowerPoint skills at all, which I don't, there would be now a PowerPoint that has two concentric, well, two overlapping circles. I think you call it a Venn diagram. And uh, on one side would say control, and the other side would say apathy, and the overlapping part would be fear. And I think we've expressed well, why be a Pharisee? Because it puts you on top, puts you in control. You get to say what's right or wrong. You get to say who's in and out. So you can set the culture to please yourself and simply legitimize excluding anyone who does not please you or threatens you, or you dislike for any reason. I think that's where the fear comes in. We do legitimately fear what we don't understand. And we definitely have some fear if we sense we're being challenged to change. So we, we don't want to do that. I think, too, it, it was mentioned, you know, if you, don't if you don't know for yourself, if you don't have the resources, if you are under the thumb, you can be frightened into obedience because you don't know an alternative. Or maybe even for us, if we, if we honestly don't think God for, could forgive the scope of what I am or have done in life, then we may well be tempted to reduce it to manageable parts to take care of ourselves. Like, how do I explain this? Like, I, maybe I'm not holy enough for him. So I'll do something for 40 days of Lent, and I will show up for church when I'm told to, and I'll try to cut down the cussing a little bit because I have this grand concern that I can't please God but rather than throwing myself on his grace and mercy, saying, thank God you have saved me despite, I want self-righteousness, so I write rules I can keep and say, good for me, I've succeeded. And I think some of that comes out of fear. Some of it comes out of control. The part that I really get concerned about, though, is the apathy part. I think that's how I got involved in some of these. That's not necessarily how I got the job. But that's definitely how I got involved in the other group, was just too damn lazy to figure it out for myself. So just tell me what to think. This is my analogy. I bet just about everyone here would say, I don't want to go to a church where someone is just shoving, shoving, trying to shove the truth down my throat. But if you are just sitting here listening to me, and that's all you're freaking going to do all week as far as relating to God or his word, then you have just sat here and let me shove the truth down your throat. So don't tell me you don't want a church like that because you're too comfortable in one like that. God has given us his word. He's given us each other. He's given us resources for study formally and informally. And if we don't take advantage of them, 
then we can't say we don't want the truth shoved down our throat. This morning I used a scripture from Hebrews 5, and I'll read it because we don't have it up on the screen. This is in the New Testament, and the writer says, we have much more to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer want to understand. In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word over and over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still an infant, not acquainted with teachings about righteousness. Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. If we're living in apathy, I think it's partly because we, you know, we say we're open-minded, but we have this human need for boundaries and security. So we're open-minded to those we have decided to be open-minded to. And we remain closed-minded to those who are different than us. We, we struggle to relate scripture to our daily lives. I used this example this morning, and I saw people, I literally saw them tighten up when I said, SCOTUS, gay marriage. How many of you wanted to shut down your Facebook account the day the decision was made, regardless of your opinion, but you couldn't stand the impact of superficial disagreement without serious discussion. Apathy. So I'll quick throw up a meme. Well, my best friend said this, so I guess I'll agree. Oh, what a pretty picture on that website. I'll forward the link too. What is the substance? What's in it? We've lost the ability to trust that God's grace and his word can bring us through tough discussions where we disagree on things. So apathy. I'm going to stick with my tribe, and my tribe is on this side of the issue. Well, I'm going to stick with my tribe on that side of the issue and simply unfriend you. But we don't know how to talk about these things. We don't even know how to have a discussion. Too much apathy. We have not, through the constant use of God's word and the constant use of stumbling and trying with each other again and again, we haven't trained ourselves to use all that is the potential of God's word. Apathy, I don't want to initiate getting to know different people. I like my, I like my friends. I work hard all week. I just want to come here and stay in my box. Or, yeah, I, I go to church on Sunday, but I'm really not comfortable with those people, so I'm not opening up to them. It's really my buddies in this other situation that I can share with. But either group is saying, I don't want the box broken. I like my rules. I need my security. I won't trust the Spirit of God to bust these relationships open and make it easier for us to share. I don't, I don't want to initiate. So Jesus snaps. I think he could snap at us as well for controlling things, setting things up so that we write the rules, for our fear that is not necessary in light of his grace, and an apathy, becoming tribal, becoming hypocritical. We lie to ourselves and we think we're fooling others. Oh, come on. You know, (laughs) 
if you can see through the person next to you, they can see through you too. If, if I can see through you, you're seeing through me, right? Oh, Lord. Yep, yep. It, it, it's tough stuff. Um, so what do we do here at SCUM to try to break the cycle of being Pharisees or following Pharisees? Well, we really are trying to flatten out leadership. Yes, we have a staff, and yes, we have a council, but you'll notice we don't have a prima donna senior pastor who clings on to this microphone and is the only one to preach. We get lots of people up here preaching. Um, we go through a lot of effort and staff meeting to evaluate these sermons before and after they're done. We want, you see this a lot in the morning service too. We've got a lot of people up front filling different roles. You had an idea, then you run with it. We are really trying to flatten the leadership here so that there is not one elite group writing the rules of how we do Scum of the Earth Church. We really want to hold each other accountable, both for grace and for encouragement and for a kick in the butt as needed so that we can build a community that allows us to go to one another and say, no, 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 seriously, how are you doing? And specifically, how are you doing with this issue or that issue? We want to be able to have those open discussions. As I said, you don't have to, you don't have to give all your stuff to the whole world, but I really hope here at SCUM you can find somebody who will hear your story straight through and walk with you through the healing and recovery you need for that. Um, we want the community to be involved. We have so many different community events, and they don't look like formal sit-in-a-circle Bible studies, but I hope these groups, whether you're just hanging out after tonight or going to Monday night potluck or coming to celebrate recovery, doing a formal small group or just going to a show, I hope the freedom is there to dig a little deeper and turn those into opportunities for spiritual growth. Not some cheesy thing where, okay, let's have a five-minute prayer before we eat now, but maybe something, something that allows people to know that this is a safe place to be a Christian. Get out of the rut. I hope that um, we can get out of the rut of being in the same culture and the same subcultures. Um, we have mission trips out. We have conferences going on. Um, let's get out of the rut of being in our own little groups. So many ways through constant use, training ourselves how to distinguish right from wrong. Um, oh, can I see the rest of that mission statement? Keep going, keep going. Come on, go, 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 go. I think that's, uh, we went too far. Yeah, that's our mission statement. And a lot of those principles will tie in with what I've been saying. Honest relationships, creativity, everyone's gift, asking questions while seeking truth. We recognize our need for a savior. We passionately yet respectfully share the saving love of Christ and demonstrate God's love in our community. These are the, some of the things we're striving to be here that will break the uh, desire to either be a Pharisee or to just follow the Pharisees. Well, Jesus didn't have um, a cool segue and wise words with which he finished up his little talk there when he was at dinner with the Pharisees. And I don't have a great ending either, so thanks. <laughs>